Yesterday, our Bible reading included Psalm 58. And if you were interested in that, or if you were perplexed by some of the language, Lord willing, on Tuesday night, we will be covering Psalm 58 on our 7 o'clock class. 7 o'clock at Tuesday here. We would love, love to have you with us. But this account in Matthew 12 will deal with a miracle of Jesus, but more focus will be put on the response to the miracle than the miracle itself. But in verse 22, then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus. And he healed him, so the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed, saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man cast out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. And Jesus, and knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. Any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? But if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people. But blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. And whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, we're going to examine the text and we're going to seek to apply the text. But but first of all, let's try to examine what is going on in this particular text. In verse 22, there is a demon-possessed man who is blind and mute. A demon-possessed man, blind and mute. In a way, this is a triple cure of Jesus. He cast out the demon, the blind man can see, and the mute man can speak. Now, in Luke's account of this, there are a couple of questions asked. In Luke's account, they say like they do here, that he only does these miracles by the power of Beelzebub. But also, they asked Jesus a question demanding a sign from heaven. Now think about what he's just done. 
They're demanding a sign when Jesus has cast out a demon and a person that previously was blind can see and a person that previously was mute can speak. When Jesus cast this demon out and this response from the man, he's now able to speak, he's able to see, the crowds are amazed. The crowd said, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? Now, if you have studied a lot in Matthew, if you've read a lot of commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, there's a point that is often made here that usually this particular word that is used, this particular Greek word that introduces this question, expects a no answer. As a general rule, that is correct. As a general rule, it does expect a no answer. But it can also be used to put forward a suggestion that may be controversial or may be unwelcome. Let me give you an illustration, a passage that uses the same word. John 4, verse 29, after Jesus has talked to the Samaritan woman, he has told her to go and call her husband, and she says, I have no husband, and he says, you're right. You have been with five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband, and she's astonished by all of this, overwhelmed by all of it, but she says in John 4, 29, come see a man who has told me all that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? It's the same word introducing that question as introducing this question in Matthew 12, verse 23. I think the crowds are amazed. But the crowds know this is a profound conclusion that they are drawing. They know it may be a controversial conclusion. And they say, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? But the response of the crowds is different than the response of the Pharisee. The Pharisee says, oh, he's only casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. He's casting out demons by the prince of demons. Now, I want you to see what they are acknowledging. They are acknowledging that Jesus is doing miracles. They are acknowledging that there are powerful deeds here where he's casting out demons that are subject, that are the result of some kind of supernatural power. Their only alternative, if they're not going to accept that it is from God, is to state that it is a demonic power. Now, look back in Matthew 9. In Matthew 9, we saw the same kind of thing. In Matthew 9, verse 32, as they were going out, a mute, demon-possessed man was brought to him. After the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed, and saying, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees were saying, he cast out demons by the root of demons. They attribute his power to Satan. In Matthew 10 verse 25, Jesus said it's enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. 
If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household? Jesus has been accused of being in a league with Satan before. How unthinkable such a charge is. But the Pharisees don't want Jesus gaining any foothold among the common people. And so they quickly dispel all their astonishment at this miracle by attributing it to Satan. Something that happened through the first few centuries of the disputes between people who did not believe in Jesus. But Jesus shows their charge is utterly illogical. A kingdom, a house, a family, whatever it is, if it's fighting against itself, it cannot stand. A kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. A city or house divided against itself cannot stand. If Satan casts out Satan, how does his kingdom stand? Notice that Satan is said to have a kingdom. His kingdom is in competition to God's kingdom. But Satan has enough sense not to destroy his own work, Jesus is saying. It's utterly illogical for them to say that Jesus is undermining Satan's work by casting out demons by Satan's own power. And Jesus said, if that's the source of my miracles, what's the source of your son's miracles? They claimed that their sons cast out demons. And some of these accounts have come down to us through Josephus. They claimed that. He says, if I'm doing this for the power of Satan, by whom are your sons doing these miracles? But he says, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now in the parallel passage in Luke, he says, if I by the finger of God cast out demons. Here, if I by the Spirit of God. You remember last week when we were looking at Matthew chapter 20, uh, Matthew 12 verse 18, that Isaiah 42 is quoted. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. I will put my spirit upon him. And just as Jesus has God's spirit placed upon him by God, he says, if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come. Now some of you may notice, this is the first time that Matthew's used the term kingdom of God. Some manuscripts had it in Matthew 6 verse 33 but most modern translations uh, prefer the term his or just the term kingdom there but there are four times and I have them on the projector where the term kingdom of God is used in Matthew usually kingdom of heaven is used 33 times but here the term kingdom of God if I by the spirit of God cast out demons the kingdom of God has come upon you. We'll come back to that. 
How can anyone enter a strong man's house? If you go into a strong man's house and you're going to try to steal everything in the house, you're going to have to first disable that strong man. You're going to have to bind him. You're going to have to do something to him. And Jesus says this is the explanation for his casting out demons. He is binding Satan. He is taking away all his position. His, um, he is taking away all his plunder. He is taking away the things in his house that are precious to him. And I have as a, a parallel, I have the passage from Isaiah 49 on the board. It is not a quotation of Isaiah 49. It, it describes the same kind of, of setting if you look at that passage. But Jesus said, he who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. And he says, I say to you, any sin or blasphemy shall be forgiven people. Now that is an indirect testimony of God's mercy. That's not usually the thing we highlight in that passage. But it's an indirect testimony of this God's mercy. Any sin or blasphemy shall be forgiven. If you are here today and you have thought, God would never forgive me for what I've done. I can't, I can't find mercy. I can't find forgiveness for my sin. Have you done anything worse than screaming, crucify him when Jesus was on trial? And yet those people were forgiven. All kinds of sin and blasphemy can be forgiven. But blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him in this age, nor in the age to come. Now obviously that means forever. Let's take just a little while to deal with this. And I, and I know this is worthy of much attention. It's more attention than we'll give it. And if you do have a specific question afterward, I will do my best to try to answer it. Let me make a couple of theological points about what this says about the Holy Spirit. One that I don't have on the slide is that the Spirit is obviously a separate person, personality than the Son. You can speak against the Son of Man, but to speak against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. But obviously, too, this shows us the deity of the Holy Spirit. And you might say, how is that? If sin against... God is always the worst thing about sin. And, and Joseph said in Genesis 39, 9, how could I do this great evil and sin against God? 
Or in Psalm 51.4, when David was confessing adultery with Bathsheba, he said, against you and you only I have sinned. He's not denying he sinned against Bathsheba. He's not denying he sinned against Uriah. He is saying the worst thing about sin is that sin is sin against God. And if the highest of all sins, the most unforgivable of sins, is blasphemy against the Spirit, even higher than blasphemy against the Son. Obviously, the Holy Spirit is God. Think about it. If you have an old man. But why would blasphemy against the Spirit be worse than blasphemy against the Son? Why would that be? Well, maybe the idea is that it's chronological in this respect. I already mentioned Acts 2. And I already mentioned some who shouted, crucify, crucify. They rejected Jesus as Savior. On the day of Pentecost, as the apostles were all in one room and the Spirit filled them and they began to speak in the different languages of the people who were present. And some were saying, what does this mean? And some said, they are full of new wine. And Peter said, these men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's the third hour of the day. He said, this is that which is spoken by the prophet Joel. I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. They are speaking by God's Spirit. They are filled with God's Spirit. And as they are filled with God's Spirit and speaking by God's Spirit, they preach the message of the death and especially the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus has fulfilled Psalm 16. Jesus has fulfilled Psalm 132. He has fulfilled Psalm 110. But being exalted to God's right hand. He said, let all the house of Israel know this Jesus whom you has crucified, God made, both Lord and Christ. Some in the crowd were pricked to the heart when they heard these things. And said, men and brethren, what should we do? And they were told, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises to you, to your children, to all who are far off. As many as the Lord our God will call. That day were added to them some 3,000 souls. Now, what is my point? Some of the people who rejected Jesus' testimony right now will later excel the Spirit's testimony about him. I think that might be the idea. Not the idea that the Spirit is greater than the Son. Though the Spirit would have to be God for this to have been said to be such a horrible sin. But the point is, if you reject that testimony, there's nothing left. I don't know if you've ever had this, but I know I have a few times. I had a few times where someone has come to me worried they committed this sin and there's no hope of pardon. There's no hope of forgiveness. There's no hope of salvation. 
Remember the hardness of heart that calls forth this day. People have seen the most astonishing miracle. There is a demon-possessed man who cannot speak and who cannot talk. And Jesus heals him. And they immediately say, he's only doing it by the power of the devil. They are so hardened. They are so callous. And they are so determined that they will not believe in Jesus. They say that. I do think The very fact someone would ask that question in fear, maybe I've done this. And I don't want to be in that situation. May be good evidence that you haven't committed it. It may be good evidence that your heart is still tender and seeking God's forgiveness and God's mercy. is part of what Jesus is speaking of right here. When they are so hardened that they will see the most powerful sign and attribute it to Satan, that is a sad, sad condition. Now what does this account cause? One of the things... That it reminds us of is we must decide for Jesus. We must actively decide for him. And the statement in verse 30 summarizes this He who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. In this context, some are asking, Is this the son of David? Is this the Messiah? Is this the promised one? Others are saying, no, he only does these miracles by the power of the devil. Everyone that is watching this event unfold, and everyone who hears the story of this event, must make a decision. They must choose who they will follow and who they will believe. We must actively decide for him. Now, I recognize there is a similar kind of statement. Uh, Well, I say similar. Look at Mark 9, verse 40. In Mark 9, verse 40, there is a passage there where one cast out demons in Jesus' name. And John says, we tried to prevent it. Which, Which, in that context, is pretty remarkable because John and company have just, well, or some of the disciples have just failed to cast out a demon in Mark 9. But, but they saw someone else casting out a demon and we tried to prevent him. And Jesus tells them in verse 39, Do not hinder him, for there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For he who is not with me is against uh, he is not against us is for us now in mark 940 he is not against us is for us Matthew 12:30 he who is not with me is against me both are true 
Both are true. But one thing, and this is a very superficial thing, Mark 9 is dealing with our assessment of others. Matthew 12 is calling us to a decision. Matthew 12 is calling us for a decision. Some of you, as I stated, are here for the first time. Some of you are here week after week, time after time. And every time we open up the Word and we speak about Him, you are making a decision as to whether or not you will follow Him and commit your life to Him. Or whether you will disregard what we're saying. Disregard what He is saying. You're making a decision. If you're simply being indifferent to the words. If you're taking the words and quickly forgetting them. Or if you're seeking to ponder them and about what it says about who He is. And our responsibilities to Him. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. In our world, we are constantly being called to actively make a decision for one side or the other. And as Moses asked, Who is on the Lord's side? I hope you answer this. Master, I am on the Lord's side. Now, I want to tell you something very interesting about this text. We have to decide whose side we're on. But we are given, we are told beforehand, who's going to win this battle. We're told who's going to win You know, sometimes you decide to root for a team or cheer for a team and and you have no idea when you get to the end of that game whether you will be triumphant or you will be experiencing the agony of defeat. But we are told when we are looking at this conflict, this conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, between truth and error, right and wrong, God and Satan, that we are told who will win. And even this event demonstrates it. The fact that those on whom Satan relied are being cast out. If I, by the Spirit of God, cast out demons then the kingdom of God has come upon you. God's reign and God's rule is going to be triumphant. It will be triumphant. The battles may wage. The conflict may be strong. But the end is decided. It was June 6th. Of 1944. 
as the world was at war. The Allied forces were seeking to land on the beaches of Normandy. Both the Allies and their enemies knew that if they successfully planted a military foot in Europe in that place, that they would win the battle. They did. It was so obvious. It was so obvious that they would, the Allies would win the battle. That the head of the Nazi forces actually joined secretly a plot to kill Hitler, to eliminate him. Because he knew the battle had been decided. But he knew the battle, but he knew the fighting would rage on, that Hitler would not surrender, that the fighting would rage on, and young men from Germany would lose their lives and be killed in the battle for no reason. We live between D-Day and V-Day. There are conflicts, there are battles that are real, there are casualties of warfare, but the end result is already decided. And when Jesus cast out these demons, cast out the most powerful of demons, he is taking away the armor that the strong man relied on, and he is giving us an advanced, an advanced preview of what will happen at the end of history. In Revelation chapter 20, you read about the binding of Satan for a thousand years. But then you see the statement in verse 10, in Revelation 20 verse 10, the devil was deceived, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever. This casting out of demons is a preview of the end of history. It's a preview of the fact ultimately Satan will be totally defeated. He will be crushed underfoot as Romans 16 verse 20 states. That he will be cast in the lake of fire and brimstone. Matthew 25 verse 41. Uh, as, as Jesus, as the disciples came back in Luke 10 and said we saw Satan as lightning. We saw, we cast out demons in your name. Jesus said I saw Satan as lightning fall from heaven. The defeat is already clear. Going back several years. I don't remember all the circumstances that led to this, but there was a young lady in a congregation that, that I was preaching for that was asking me several questions about Satan. And she asked these questions. I, I thought about the fact that I'd never really preached a lesson about Satan or about 
the devil. And uh, I was looking at the verses, but I also called uh, a preacher uh, that was in the area where I was living that, that had studied a lot about those kind of things, where I, I thought that he had. And I asked him his advice, and he gave me this interesting piece of advice, which I don't completely agree with, but, but I, I do understand. He said... He really doesn't talk about Satan and the devil much as far as devoting a whole lesson to him. Because he said it can create in people's minds the idea that we can't stand against him. And after all, he is, as 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says, a roaring lion. Seeking whom he may devour. He's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Okay? Read the next verse. 1 Peter 5, 9. But resist him. Resist him firm in the faith. Knowing that your same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. So while we want to say everything the Bible says about Satan, we want to be warned lest we be, uh, lest we be taken in by his um, methods, as, as 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 11 warns. At the same time, we don't want to present a picture of Satan as some kind of in, unbeatable foe. Resist him. Not only this passage says it in 1 Peter 5, 89, but in James 4, 7, resist the devil. And remember the rest of that. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. It's not that we don't have the power to stand against him. He's going to do the running. If we resist him. Because you see, he's already been defeated. And worse is still to come. And while the conflict rages and where people are taking sides, I want you to know before you take a side in this conflict that the outcome is decided and that those who follow the Lord will be victorious. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 5, 6 in verse 11, to stand strong against the schemes of the devil. To stand firm against his schemes. You can do that. I can do that. By God's grace. By God's power. By God's strength. We can do this. And this incident reveals to us that Satan has been defeated and will be defeated again. Have you ever made that decision to follow Jesus? He who gathered, you either gather with him or you scatter. 
You're either with it or you're against it. In this text, Jesus faces enemies who are accusing him and accusing him of the worst conceivable things. And he faces some that are beginning to entertain the possibility that he's the promised Messiah. Read the story. Read the whole book. And see which of these proves to be right. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, if you believe that he died and rose again, if you're willing to turn from your sins in repentance and be baptized for remission of sin, the Lord is anxious to add you to his people as we stand and sing.